Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Lara Logan, Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent for CBS. She's the winner of an Emmy, an Overseas Press Club Award, and, in fact, numerous other awards. She has reported from the world's danger zones, especially Iraq and Afghanistan. Lara, welcome to Profiles. Thank you very much. Your father was a textile businessman, your mother a sales representative. How do you get interested in news from that background? (laughs) Well, my mother was a reluctant sales representative. She had to get a job because my parents divorced when we were very young, and she had no choice. And one of the things that I learned from her was she always said, you don't want to be in a position where you're forced to do something you don't love. I was raised by both my parents to have a very strong sense of self, to know what you believed in, stand up for that. Don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe in and uh, to have an inquiring mind. And I really learned the values, I think, that have sustained me throughout my life and my work. I learned from my parents, even though we had a very fractured um, upbringing. And I think above all else, they taught us in apartheid South Africa, they taught us to see all people as equal and respect all people for who they were. We never thought in terms of color of your skin in our house growing up. So I think that was a gift, really, given the circumstances and the time. Your your mother was, I think, a member of an anti-apartheid organization, was she not? She was a member of a group called Peaceful Change Now, um, which was about peaceful change. And she was always, both my parents were always in favor of equal rights for all in South Africa and explained that, you know, to us very coherently, I think. Um, it made no sense. The alternatives made no sense in our world. Would that perhaps have not led you to something to be more of an activist rather than a reporter? You know, I don't think so because I from a very early age, I had an aversion to organizations. I saw a lot of things being done in the name of organizations. And I realized that collectively, when human beings give themselves a name and a label, that it's very hard to identify yourself with that and support everything they do. I don't consider myself of the left or of the right. I hate labels like that. And I hate organizations. I've never joined anything. I'm not a member of any club, really. Because I think... I, I I grew up in a society that excluded people unfairly, and and I never, I never wanted to be part of something like that. I did always have a strong sense of injustice, and I believed that as a journalist, first of all, I wanted to know what was really happening in South Africa. I wanted to see it for myself, to understand it. And then I, I honestly, sincerely, and somewhat naively believed that if we could shed some light on that. If the world knew what was really happening, that people would stand up and do something about it. And that is what happened in the end in South Africa. But of course, it doesn't always work like that. It's interesting to me that you coming from South Africa, if you think of some of the other uh, influential journalists in the U.S. today, John Burns from the New York Times, comes originally from England uh, and then into Canada. Uh, Christian Amanpour of ABC comes from Iran. How how has it happened that some of our best reporters no longer come from the United States but from other countries? But isn't that the spirit and soul of America? 
I mean, it's a nation of immigrants. People have always come from all over to this land because it's the it's the place on earth where everybody knows you're going to get a fair shake. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're born to a life of privilege or not. It doesn't matter if you come from abroad or not. Americans, I think one of the greatest things about Americans is that they will open their hearts and their homes and their lives and their doors to people who who on their own merits. And um, that's definitely the vision of America that I grew up with. And I have never encountered anything along the way that made me believe otherwise. I guess it's because in the my question stem from in the past, um, some of the famous reporters, Edward R. Murrow, um, the reporters of Vietnam in the 1960s, they all came from the United States. And the assumption, I think, was at the time that in order to report for Americans, you had to have an American perspective. And that's definitely a factor. You know, I mean, I don't report, for example, on domestic politics. Not that I wouldn't, but I don't think I'm qualified to do that yet. You know, after some time living in America, when I have a better understanding of of that, of the country and the people then I, I would feel more comfortable doing that kind of work. I think there there definitely are some barriers, but it's ultimately on the basis of your work that you're judged. And I think on the basis of my work, the audience has shown us over time that they trust and believe and want to hear what you have to say. They don't always like it. There's plenty of people <laughs> that write in <laughs> and tell you how much they hate you and hate what you're doing. And, uh, you know, the Internet these days is a fabulous forum for that. But you endure for a reason. Let's go back to South Africa. Um, how did you get your first job in newspapers? We had a woman come in and talk to us at school, in my high school, about extra-parliamentary political activity for women which was basically ways in which uh, women in South Africa could uh, contribute and campaign against apartheid peacefully. And it was a great organization, and this woman was a freelance journalist. And uh, I went to her afterwards and asked her, you know, I said, I also want to be a journalist. How can I do this? And she spoke to her boss. And I really honestly thought that in my vacation in high school, I was going to be making tea and the general dog's body at the newspaper. But um, the editor of the Sunday paper was a fabulous you know, traditional newsman with a cigarette hanging out one corner of his mouth and a cup of coffee in the other hand, black, of course. And, you know, every second word was a swear word. And he didn't care that I was 17 years old. He just, he just set me loose on the world. And there was a lot to say and do in South Africa at that time. And I never looked back. I wrote my first story on the back of a cigarette box with a pencil stub that the photographer grumpily ferreted out of the bottom of his bag. <laughs> what was that story about? You know, it was a completely innocuous, um, superficial piece, which got huge play in South Africa at the time because it was a, about it was Wimbledon, it was the big tennis tournament, and everyone watches that over there. And we it was Ivan Lendl's great year um, to win. This was his one shot after all his tries, and everyone thought he was going to do it. And we had a guy who looked exactly like him, so we did this, you know, fun piece about our very own Ivan Lendl. Before you went to college. After you had started your journalism, you took some time off. You worked as a nanny in Paris, uh, as a hostess in New York at what I think was called the Water Club. Yep. Um, why? What were you trying to accomplish? I wanted that? to see the world. I wanted to – I think, you know, when you grow up in a country like South Africa, you have a great thirst for – other places, Europe. I wanted to see Europe. I wanted to see America. I wanted to explore. 
I guess it's your innate sense of adventure. And, uh, and so I was 17 years old, and off I went. And I didn't really look back. I mean, I came home. I did. I, I couldn't wait to get home when I knew, when I saw that Mandela was going to be released and that the, the political changes in South Africa that, that signaled that was coming. I couldn't get home fast enough. I knew that this was where I needed to be when that happened. Did you study journalism when you went home to college? No, I didn't. I studied business. Why? Economics, law. Because I, my passion was English and language and the written word. And I knew that I would always educate myself in that art and discipline. Um, but to understand how the world functions, you needed an understanding of money markets, economies, politics, you know, not, I mean, I think you get an understanding of politics just by understanding human nature. But to, but to sit down with Marx's theory of economics, that wasn't exactly like bedtime reading, I had to be forced to do it. <laughs> and I wanted to empower myself, my very early decisions always were, how can I empower myself to be in the strongest possible position as a journalist, in order to make and build a career and do what I love. But you continued to work as a journalist while you were a student. Is that not right? Yes. In fact, in, in high school, you know, I ended up working at the paper all the time at the weekends and through my vacation. And when I came back from Paris, I went to the biggest daily newspaper in our state and said, you don't have anyone on your staff my age. Let me work for you and capture the young reader. And you don't have to pay me. And they said, well, we'll pay you if we print it. And they did. When you graduated, though, you didn't stay in newspapers. You gravitated toward um, television reporting. Viz News, I think, was the organization. Yes, only because I couldn't get a job in print. You know, I wanted to be in the foreign media. I'd worked in the South African media at that point for a number of years. Even though I was only 21 years old, I had, you know, three and a half years of, of print journalism under my belt at that point. But I knew, and my godmother, who was a journalist, taught me, she said, don't think that this is how it's supposed to be done. We're working under emergency restrictions here. This is not freedom of speech. And that was frustrating. That had a, a shelf life to it. I wanted to be in the foreign media. I wanted to be in the townships. I wanted to see for myself. And, the, you know, the paper was understandably nervous to send a 17, 18, 19-year-old white girl into the most violent areas in South Africa to watch people being hacked to death. So um, it was only once I got into the foreign media that I was able to do that. And I, I took the Foreign Press Association of South Africa book, and I just went to everyone. I started at the beginning, and I went all the way to Viz News, and I eventually picked up some freelance work there. Going into the black areas, how did that affect the way you approach journalism from that point on? Did it change you in some way? Oh, it's impossible for that not to change you. I think, well, it was impossible for me. It was always a mystery to me how some people could go into the townships every day to cover what was happening and, and not be moved by what they saw. There was no question for me in my mind um, that it just it brought home everything that I innately knew, that apartheid was wrong, that it was a, a noble struggle and fight for freedom, and I believed in it absolutely, and we would have done anything. And it was a great, there was a great camaraderie in it because it's very rare on a story, as you know, that you have such an obvious and clear sense of right and wrong. And although, you know, there were lots of shades of gray, of course, because I was a white South African and, you know, 
there were no white South Africans like my family and myself that were represented in the media coverage. If you were white, you were, you know, right-wing, conservative, evil, uh, racist, etc. And if you were black, it was, you know, the grand noble struggle for freedom. But that's pretty much, you know, at the end of the day, that was the most important thing to take away from it. So I didn't mind at all that that depiction even though it didn't represent me and it was it was just amazing and humbling to be part of something that was so much bigger than all of us and um it was competitive but we all like as soon as there was and there were many times like this when one of us would be killed or injured we instantly put aside the competitiveness and helped each other and and uh and that was it was really quite an amazing place to learn how to be a journalist did you learn something about yourself in that kind of situation about that you had this fearlessness in you? I think not so much a fearlessness, just as you know, if you're obsessed with doing your job, it's I think you know bravery is a is a, a very uh commendable thing. I don't think that you're brave if you're not afraid. To me, bravery is when you're really afraid, but you do something, you force yourself to do it, or you, you find a way to do it. Anyway, if you're not afraid, it's not really brave, is it? Because it doesn't take much. It's just, I mean, if it, you know, there are some soldiers who are afraid, but they stick it out and they do their best. And there are some who, who just, it just doesn't phase them. They have that inner peace and calm that comes to the fore and they rise above it. It's amazing to watch. Did you realize you had those characteristics before? Oh, yeah. I knew. I absolutely knew because other people look at you in horror and say, why would you want to go to Angola? There's a war going on. And you're like, well, that's why I want to go to Angola because there are people in that war. That, you know, wars are about people. And and if if there's nobody there to, to see what they're going through, to bring that to light, to record that for history, then those people have suffered for nothing. That was really the driving motivation. From South Africa, you went to London, freelance. What was your goal? To to be a foreign correspondent, you know, to to get to the stories. It was very hard as a as a young girl to have people send you right into the into the heart of the beast, so to speak. And um, I wanted, you know, I'd worked in agency news, Viz News, and then be, that became Reuters Television for. A number of years at that point, more than five years, and I wanted that editorial control over my work because we were we were supplying everybody else, and then they could do whatever they wanted with it. I wanted to be the end product as well as the beginning product, and I wanted to write again. Writing was always my passion. I wanted to write my own pieces, and I wanted to work for an American company because I was tired of working for the British. <laughs> You worked for what, ABC and CBS at the time? I did. I worked for ABC News for a year on their news desk, and then I and I freelanced before that for um, NBC and CBS, and then I went and took a job for uh, for another show, working in environmental stories. I went to Siberia and Australia and all places. It was it was fascinating. You began to establish a reputation for creative ways to get a story, I think, when you were working for Good Morning Television, which is a British um, program. You got arrested in France uh, for climbing a fence. Yes, for breaking into the French railway station. Well, you know, that was very simple for me because we were covering the Afghan refugees that were trying to get from France into England. And that was what they had to do every night. And so I, you know, I wasn't going to walk with them 
just for a little way and then leave them. I wanted to do it all. I wanted to be with them through the whole experience, stay with them all night, try to get on the train, see what it was like, how dangerous was it, how difficult was it, what did they go through. So when we got to you know the railway station and the fence and they started to, to break in, my cameraman said, okay, well, that's it. And I was like, I started to climb. <laughs> he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going over. And he said, well, you're crazy. I'm not going with you. I said, fine, give me the camera. And of course, at that point, he was like, oh, and he climbed after me. And of course, once we were, when the French police found us and we were arrested, I remember looking around and they had all vanished. There wasn't a refugee in sight. It was just the two of us. We were caught. And so I spent the night in the prison. Well, the funniest part was standing in the line of all these refugees that would, of course, get arrested every night, you know. But I spoke French. So I managed to persuade the French policeman to let me out of prison in time to do my live shot. That's a fortunate outcome. How important was September 11th to your career? You know, I don't think of it like that. I mean, I, I think it's it's probably fair to look at it and, and ask that question. But I don't. I could never think of something like September 11th in terms of a career. I would. I know that I would have succeeded in my work with or without September 11th. Um, for me, it's such a significant, historic event, tragic event, that it's just, I just don't evaluate things in those terms. I take my job day by day. Um, I throw myself into it with absolute passion. I cover the stories that I believe in as much as I can. And, and so for me to evaluate something of that significance and tragic proportions in terms of my own gain, it's just not how I'm programmed. It wasn't long after that when I actually was in Afghanistan. Was it a little bit tricky to get the necessary visas to get there? Oh, yes. I know you've been reading on the Internet. It was very tricky because I had to get from a French prison to my live shot. And then I still had to get to the Russian embassy, had to get a visa for Russia because you had to go through Moscow, you had to go to Tajikistan. But you also needed a visa from Germany, from the Afghan government in exile. So I had to get to Germany and get that as well, then get back to England, jump on a plane to Moscow, get to Tajikistan, where there were thousands of journalists waiting to get to Afghanistan. And at a press conference with Dr. Abdullah, the then foreign minister of Afghanistan, one of my British colleagues said, uh, Dr. Abdullah, you know, my station is the only British station not represented in your country. And he said, well, come see me afterwards. And I put up my hand for my little morning TV show and said, well, I'm not represented either. And he said, come see me too. <laughs> and that's how we ended up going in. And of course, they all used me to get Dr. Abdullah's pilot to fly us much deeper and further into Afghanistan than Dr. Abdullah himself was going. <laughs> he got off in Hajjabauddin just a few miles over the border and we went right down into the Panchia Valley. Weren't you a little bit nervous about this uh, kind of situation? You're going into a country you don't know very well. You don't know the language. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything at all. Um, no, I wasn't nervous at all. I was, you know, it's the same thing as as nine eleven. is watching that unfold. The only thing that you're thinking about is how to get there. You know, what are the ways in which I, this is, this is history unfolding before our eyes. I want to, to witness this. I want to be part of this. I want to make my contribution. And I think that as a journalist is bearing witness. And, and you can't bear witness if you're not there. So that's all I thought about. But I did spend my first night in Afghanistan on a 
floor of an Afghan house with a about 50 Afghan men, <laughs> and no one spoke English. And I did wonder if I was going to, to die in that house. <laughs> How did you then go about um, learning about what was happening in Afghanistan? Was it simply questions and answers, or did you oh, yeah. do some kind of research, have any kind of person providing you with some background briefing? You know, you, you find books. I had the great game with me, of course. I had um, Ahmed Rashid's book, Taliban. He's a fantastic Pakistani journalist. Um, so I had a number of books with me. I was reading as fast as I could. You've got wires, of course. You're reading the wires and every newspaper article you can get your hands on. And, and then, to me, the most important thing of all is you talk to anyone that you meet. Right? You, I mean, you ask the Afghans to tell you about Afghanistan. You learn from them. They teach you about their culture. They teach you everything that you need to know. I can still go to the same taxi driver I had in my first trip in Afghanistan, and I've watched, and I know him so well. I know where he comes from. You know, I know his political leanings. I know the context in which he talks, and it's very revealing for me year after year to hear his insights. Was it hard to get interpreters? Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, interpreters were assigned to you. It wasn't hard to get interpreters. It was just hard to get interpreters who actually spoke English. <laughs> because really, the, the Northern Alliance, you know, who were, who were the Afghan opposition at the time, had sort of a very, very vague system set in place. And they were assigning sort of, I don't know if they were minders. I guess they were. But they were assigning, you know, someone local to work with you. So that was easy to get. But my poor translator, Mohammed, Mohammed Mohammadi, spoke almost no English, um, but we we remain great friends to this day, and I have to say that his English has improved dramatically over the years, far more quickly than my Farsi. <laughs> Let's pause now for um, some music that you've picked. Um, can you tell us about that? Well, this song I love because it has an inherent irony in it. It's It's the most beautiful piece of music. The words are beautiful. But it was, it was really a song that uh, took the South African government, the apartheid government, by surprise. It, it went to number one on the radio stations, government radio stations, played under the most extreme emergency restrictions. And it was really a protest song. But it was written by a white South African soldier who was conscripted into the army. You didn't have a choice. In those days, everybody had to go and serve. And it was about the suffering of the people in the townships when he was on guard at night. It's called Weeping um, because he, he talks about the lion, the beast. Of course, the beast was... Uh, his analogy for the black people, that's how they were painted by the government. But he said that the lion wasn't roaring, it was weeping. And this version of the song is played by the Soweto String Quartet, who are a group of black South African musicians, classically trained, who've adapted the classical music into a sort of a jazz and also township kind of style. And it was just amazing to me that in the midst of all that suffering and poverty, that people who were so talented, it's really just the raw talent that carried them through and survived. How, do you, how did anyone in black South Africa ever learn how to play the violin? That's um, an incredible achievement. So it's very moving for me in many respects. I think it, it represents really the heart and soul of the struggle. Also, I like the coming together of the black and white because that was my South Africa growing up. It's not the South Africa of, of the movies and the books and the newspaper headlines and the television pieces against, in the struggle years, and that's okay, but it's, uh, it resonates within for me. 
chosen by our Profiles guest today, CBS reporter Laura Logan. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. You've had close calls. A Humvee struck by an anti-tank weapon. A soldier next to you shot by a sniper. Did you think about this before you started reporting in Afghanistan? Oh, yes, because the most dangerous places that I, where I learned how to survive and do my job were right in my own backyard in South Africa. We lost so many people in the townships in different ways, mob violence, you know, the worst kind of death, I think, and um, even accidentally being shot by the South African peacekeeping force before the elections. You know, um, a journalist I'd known for many years died that way, and others um, killed in Burundi. In, during the the coup there, so I had thought about it. I had uh, I had learnt from very experienced cameramen and other journalists um, who knew how to survive in those situations. You know, you you play the odds. <laughs> you know, I figure I got a pretty good chance of surviving this. But there are many journalists who, the longer they go at this, the more they think their time is up. Have you ever been fatalistic or sort of saying to yourself, "If it happens, it happens." You know, I can't. I can't do that because I have a seven-month-old baby and a and a son who's one and a half. So I just I can't think about that. It's very hard because, on the one hand, I I owe it to them to give that some consideration, but the smell and taste of fear is debilitating. It's very hard to go back out there and do your job once you experience that. And I have to confess to having some of that in the pit of my stomach now when I step out the door, when I get into the the Humvee or you know, the armored vehicle. These days, you know, I just I just spent time with a soldier who described a, losing four of his soldiers in a, an EFP, an armor-piercing bomb, roadside bomb in Iraq. And he talked about walking up to the vehicle, the first thing he noticed was that all the windows were red. You know, there's no protection from these things. You don't get a free pass because you're a mom with two babies. You don't get a free pass because you're a a woman or a journalist. It's very dangerous war, very, more dangerous than it's ever been. And um, and, and I do do have a growing sense of unease. Is it more frightening in Afghanistan or in Iraq? They're both terrifying in their own way. I mean, I, I think that there is a, a general underestimation of what these people are capable of 
and the threat that they pose. There's a great one of the great things about Western society is that there's a lot of um, of looking at ourselves, taking responsibility, questioning our own actions, being self-critical, and that's absolutely important. We have to do that. But somehow people think that that means that the enemy isn't who they are. You know, if we say that it's wrong for us to do this and it's wrong for us to do that and take responsibility for the innocent deaths and the civilian casualties that we've caused, then somehow that means we give the other side a free pass. And I think that's dangerous. You made some reference to women correspondents don't get any special treatment. Um, I think it's about a quarter of the war correspondents this time around have been have been women. It was an interesting survey in Neiman Reports in 2009. It said women war correspondents suffer bad effects of stress and fear at the same rate that men do, which in peacetime is not true. What is it that's special about women war correspondents that they're different from the ordinary population of women? You know, I don't know. I, I would – I think that women are more inclined to – embrace the emotions that they feel like when something is really hard I don't mind crying I mean I can't stop myself crying anyway but I don't you know I, I don't ha have any problem with that if I have to get back to my room and sob my heart out I'm going to do that or you know sometimes even during an interview especially since I had my own children it's hard to hold it together um, so I think that women maybe deal more readily with difficult emotions than men do men are told you know that they have to have this exterior and be tough and um, and sometimes you just can't be tough. With, it'll break you, what you see over there. Do women have a special style in their work that facilitates their getting story? Do you think women are better equipped to gather information no. in a wartime situation? No, I don't think so. I think that the people who gather who are good at gathering information, are people who are very good at talking to other people. They're good at listening. They know when to listen, but they also know when to talk. They give, you know, they give of, of well, I give of myself. I give a lot of myself. I don't, I don't hold anything back. Um, not everybody's like that. But I think that, you know, you're either gifted at starting conversations with complete strangers or you're not. I think that people who have a good, you know, who have a good sense of feel, you have to have a good sense of feel for a situation. You have to know when to be gentle with somebody or you have to know when to be direct. You have to feel your way through. And if you are insensitive to that, if you're incapable of putting yourself in someone else's shoes, looking at it through their eyes, then you'll probably end up trampling all over them and people don't want to talk to you, you know. But it's like I, my my friends love to talk to me because I'm I'm not judgmental. They know I'm going to tell them what I think, whether they think they're right or wrong, but I'm not going to judge them for it. So I think there are human qualities that make some people good at gathering information, collecting information, and there are human qualities that make you bad at it. Uh, I might quote one of your rivals uh, who said that you exploit your God-given advantages <laughs> with a skill that uh, Mata, Mata Hari, Hari. Might, it might envy. Is that criticism sexist or is it yes, just competition? Yes, of course it is. It is completely and utterly sexist because if it was a man, you wouldn't be saying that. There, you know, I mean, I don't think that he meant that to be taken to be such a, a huge deal as it was. It really was taken and blown out of proportion. The British tabloids just loved it. They were eating it up. And it was as much about eating it up and sensation as it was about anything else. Is that absolutely what he thought? I don't know. I don't think it was. 
I don't think it was. I think he's just, it was his style of writing. He was prone to exaggeration. But he's not the only person, you know, to have made that kind of suggestion that you're using your your looks or your feminine charm. I get, you know, everybody says that. My husband, the first time I met him, said, your tricks aren't going to work on me. And I have been at pains to point out that apparently if I have any tricks, they work (laughs) quite well since we're married and have two children now. But um, I just think it's silly in the end. I think it's ridiculous. Smart people don't care about that. Smart people with something important to say and something to contribute don't care about that. When I'm at the scene of a suicide bombing and there's over 120 people dead, do you really think that that's what matters? Your humanity is what matters in that moment. You know, how many times I've reached out to people that I've been interviewing where, you know, I just did a series of interviews where one one of the men I interviewed said, this is the first time I've spoken about this. And because he, he, and it wasn't because of how I look, it was because of who I am, that in the time I spent with this person, engaging with them, it was a sense of the integrity, it was the, uh, the sense of knowing where you stand, that there are no surprises here. What you see is what you get. And I think that's ultimately what people respond to. I mean, yeah, sure, can you, you know, can you persuade someone at a door to let you in or when, you know, everyone else is locked out, if you beg and flatter your, your eyelashes? I suppose you could, you know, but that's not, you can't count on that. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, the good fortune once to meet um, Shirley Temple Black, uh, and she said she could use her name and her fame to get in the door, but once she got in the door, she had to perform the job just the way well, everybody else did. there you go. That's did. exactly right. Much more, you know, much more succinct <laughs> than me, and absolutely right. Who are your journalistic models? You know, I'm not a person that models myself on anybody. It's just not. It's not in my thought process. I, I have colleagues that I respect greatly. You know, and and. Uh, aspire. I aspire to, to doing the kind of work on 60 Minutes that Ed Bradley and Mike Wallace and Steve Croft, I mean, and all of them have done. Um, I love what the show has done over the years. Bob Schieffer is amazing. You know, he's just an incredible writer and a great journalist. So there's so many people along the way. I, I, there are some writers, Rich Oppel from the New York Times, Dexter Filkins, fabulous writers that have just done such great work. I don't model myself on them, but um, but I have a great respect for what they do and how they do it. How do you go about approaching a story? Ed Murrow used to talk about using as few words as possible. How much of your story is picture? How much is words? How do you go about conceiving its shape? I think every story is different, and it depends on what you have. When you have you know, powerful images, let them speak for themselves as much as you can. When you have amazing interviews, I'm doing a piece right now for 60 Minutes, and I said to my producer, you know, if we have five lines of track in this entire 12 and a half minutes, that's enough because these interviews are so strong. We should be able to tell the story through that. That I love. I, I much prefer when the story is able to tell itself. Um, than when I have to do a, a lot of the heavy lifting like that, just because I think in the end those are the stories that, that I like more. Um, so I think it you really have to look at it on its merits. You always want as few words as possible. You always want every word to count. I mean, that's, that's the art if you can master it. 
how has your job changed with the development of technology? It used to be that newspaper reporters reported in the newspaper with stories that came out once a day, and television reporters, it was just once a day on the story. But now you have um, Twitter and um, blogs and all those kinds of things. Has that complicated your work? Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, it's complicated it in some ways, but it's also invigorated it in other ways. You know, you, you have to embrace the technology. There's no other way. That's the way forward. And we're able to do amazing things today because of the technology. Um, so I, I, I really am in favor of it. There is absolutely a downside. The blogs, you know, are, are a clear downside because people don't seem to distinguish between a blog and a newspaper, for example. They don't. They, and, and blogs can be great, but they can also be people putting rumor and innuendo and, and lies out there. And there's no one to hold them to account. If anyone thinks that mainstream journalists are not held to account, they're just wrong. I mean, that's just not true. There are standards. There are ethics. There is a system of accountability. Does that mean you know people get away with stuff? Sure. But ultimately, the vast majority of us live and work to a standard. There is no such standard on the blogs. And that, I think, is frightening. You have been criticized for expressing your opinion more than other journalists do. This is a kind of follow-up to the being held to account. Has the role of the of the war correspondent, the foreign correspondent, changed in some way that it's now expected that we are looking for an opinion? You know, it's funny to hear you say that because I, I haven't been criticized for expressing my opinion more than other journalists. I did one show where I expressed my opinion and... And I was heavily criticized for it. And it was so bizarre because as long as journalists... Was this John Stewart? Um, no, the John Stewart one I wasn't criticized for because because people, you know, enjoyed it and thought that was funny. And I think because of the context, because it was a late night, you know, comedy show. And Stewart says we don't do news. Right. Yeah. Um, the one I was criticized for was was a web show, Washington Unplugged, where I was asked for my opinion. And it was very clear I was being asked for my opinion. I've never given my opinion on the evening news. I mean, that's not the forum for it, right? It's so strange to me because newspapers, for as long as they've existed, have news pages. And then they have the op-ed page, which is for your editorials, which is analysis and opinion. So it, it's always been around. There's there's never been a time when journalism has existed that reporters have not been asked to give analysis and opinion. But there's a place for that. I was giving my opinion in the appropriate place for it. But someone just wanted to write that story at that time. It was pegged to another reporter who'd said something that they didn't agree with. And and then they always love to say something about me because I'm always opening my big mouth <laughs> and putting my foot in it in some people's eyes. And so, you know, I'm, I'm fodder for that because I, I'm not political. I'm very blunt, very direct, and I always say what I think. So sometimes that makes a lot of enemies and sometimes it makes a lot of friends and I don't care about any of them. Don't you shape your stories, though, in some way that provide a point of view, a perspective? You know, I don't. Not in the sense that this is my perspective and now I'm going to shape my story to it. I've never been like that and I think there are a lot of journalists who are not like that. I've always been driven by what I've found. I've I've never written a story in advance. I, I'm the one who wants to go there and do the 
endless interviews because I want to understand every detail and talk to everybody I can and then have this plethora of material that makes my producers just want to kill themselves because it makes our job so much more complicated and so much harder. But that's my style. That's who I am. And I don't mind the extra work, the heavy lifting that's involved in sorting through all of that. Ultimately, there are some judgments in there because once you've spoken to as many people and you've got that understanding and you've seen it for yourself, you have to decide in my two minutes, what are the most important things I have to communicate here? But there's a process of doing that. I look at it and say, how can I present a picture of this that's not misleading? If I focus on this, it may be absolutely true, but it's going to skew the the, the picture. It's going to give the wrong understanding and context to this. So I don't do that. And I think that's, that's not hard for smart people. I mean, ultimately, yes, I, I will always gravitate to doing a story um, where civilians are killed because I think it's very important for people to understand what collateral damage looks like. So you, there are value judgments in what you're doing, implicit in what you're doing. But there's also a process of being fair, of being accurate, of being reasonable. And I think that that process works its way. I think, I, I think you, you know, I don't think that all journalism is automatically biased towards one point of view. What's the story you're most proud of? I have a few, and they, and they vary. <laughs> So um, one of the stories I was very proud of was the piece I did about uh, Iraqi orphans that were abused. But I was also very proud of the 60 Minutes piece I did with um, called Out of the Shadows, which had the, um, at the time, chief of intelligence for Afghanistan. And I was proud of that piece because it said things that needed to be said. Um, it wasn't dramatic, wasn't sensational, but you had this Afghan man who was probably the best interview I've ever done in my life. And English wasn't even his first language. And um, I think what he said is so important, was so critical to the debate on the Afghan war that I'm very proud of that piece. You know, when I asked him, um, you know, what did he think of the debate in America over the war and, and America pulling out? And he said, this is not, is, I said, is this America's war? Is it your war? And he said, oh, this is my war. He said, Bin Laden cannot engender a vision for this world. Mullah Omar, leader of the Taliban, is the same. He said, the people we are fighting are truly forces of darkness. And I don't say this to flatter the American people or the American politicians. Whether you are here or you're not here, I will continue to fight. These mountains will not cease to exist. These rivers will not stop flowing. You know, and I said, what happens when the Americans pull out? And he said, well, everyone associated with the American vision for this country will be massacred. He said, it'll be a huge tragedy. Some two, two and a half million Afghans will die. But we're used to tragedy in Afghanistan. This will not stop. You know, we will continue to fight because they truly believe that the people they're fighting are forces of evil. Are you concerned that um, the world will s cease paying as much attention to Afghanistan as we have done with Iraq? When I say the world, I'm talking about journalism and, and, and reporters. Oh, I, I mean, I'm not concerned with it. I, I think it's absolutely a reality. There's no question it will happen. I, I, that's how this works. And, and, you know, there are some practical reasons for that. Like you can't, you just can't physically finance, you know, 
full operations in, in two wars endlessly at the same time, just the way, you know, the country of America seems to be having trouble financing the wars. It's the same for media companies. And on top of that, there's the attention span. I mean, it's funny, though, because we hear all the time that, you know, the war, people are not interested in it and ratings go down, et cetera, et cetera. And yet every time there's a war story on 60 Minutes, there's no problem with the ratings. And 60 Minutes does a lot of them. I asked you a bit ago stories you were proud of. Is there a story that you'd like to do over again? No. I mean, sometimes I do live shots where I'm not that great. <laughs> Stumble over my words or, you know, something like that. But no, I mean, I've never... Um, I've never been pulled out of an embed. I've never been you know, made to retract anything or issue an apology because if you do your job properly the first time around, you won't have to. Can you talk a little bit about your present job? What does it entail exactly? I mean, chief foreign affairs correspondent sounds like a grandiose title that you go to the world's capitals and you talk to the, to the, to the leaders. Hmm. If we went to the world's capitals and talked to the leaders, that's what I would do. <laughs> but we don't, do we? No. It's, um, you know, for me, the title is a, a very decent and humbling acknowledgement from CBS of what I've, uh, what I've been able to do for them over the years and of what they think of my work. That's really what it represents to me. But I'm also a correspondent on 60 Minutes. You know, and I have to do uh, a lot of stories this season. So splitting myself between being chief foreign affairs correspondent for the news and for 60 Minutes is tough. It's very difficult because they're both very demanding jobs. Which, what do you call home, by the way? Is it New York or Washington? No, it's Washington, D.C. <laughs> home is where the heart is, right? Yeah. For a final piece of music, what would you like to hear? The other song you have is My Texas Angel, and that's special to me because my husband is from Texas and my... My American family. I think my American home, ultimately, will be Texas. Okay. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Laura Logan, CBS Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent. Laura, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. 
Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.